Peter's got this fabulous um, expression about needing to have passion, energy, focus, and competence. Hey guys, I'm Carlos Miranda, and welcome to What Donors Want, a podcast by IG Advisors. I started IG six years ago, and we're a London-based strategy and management consultancy in the social impact space. What that means is that we specialize in philanthropy, corporate impact, and fundraising advice. At IG, we have unique access to both donors and fundraisers, and it's part of our mission to help them better understand each other. And so you have what donors want. In each episode, we'll interview a different kind of major donor and get right down to it. What do they actually want from the fundraisers who cultivate them? We're going to give you this advice straight from the donor's mouth. Welcome back to What Donors Want. I'm Rachel Stephenson-Chef, and I'm a colleague of Carlos's from IG. I'm also the producer of What Donors Want, or as Carlos likes to call me, IG's Roz from Fraser, which is kind of awesome. So our first episode featured Alfonsina Peñalosa, a program officer at the prolific Hewlett Foundation. And now our second episode is going to feature a private family trust. The donors? Lynn and Peter Smitham, who co-founded the Kiowa Trust in 2004. I'm joined here by my colleague, Alicia Miranda, who's IG's Managing Director and Head of Corporate Impact. Thanks for having me. So the Kiowa Trust is a private trust whose mission is to support adolescent girls in India. Um, I've known Lynn uh, and her husband Peter for a little while. One thing I love about them is that they are passionate philanthropists committed to investing in adolescent girls. Lynn says that she believes that investing in girls has a catalytic effect. It's like magic dust. This quote from Lynn is actually from our first edition of IG Insights, which is called The State of Funding for Girls. And it's an original piece of research written by Alicia. The Smithams are featured as a best practice case study in how to fund girls effectively. I have loved the Smithams' work for a long time. Shall we give them a call? Let's do it. Thank you both so much, um, Lynn and Peter, for being on What Donors Want. We're so thrilled to have you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. We're very honored to be asked. Before we dive into the questions about uh, fundraising and philanthropy, we want to start, we're starting each episode off with a speed round of questions, um, sort of a fun get-to-know-you style, and which is A, just for fun, but B, also to promote the concept that philanthropists are people and foundations are people, and if you want to build fantastic donor relationships, getting to know know your, you know your program officer or your philanthropist's favorite book or the place that they want to travel is really important and that we're all just people trying to do our jobs. So that's kind of the reasoning behind why we do that. Um, and so we'll start off with that. If that's all right with you, we can just jump right in and, and say the first thing that comes to your mind, no matter okay. how silly. <laughs> okay, perfect. Um, so the first question, this is for Peter. Um, so Peter, Rolling Stones or the Beatles? Can I say neither of them? <laughs> oh my gosh, I suppose. Controversial. Controversial, exactly. Hmm, all right. But it is one of the important points, isn't it, about understanding your potential customer? <laughs> it is, it really is, especially if they don't like the Rolling Stones or the Beatles. Do you, do you, have, a, do you have a substitution? Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, that is a really good one. I was uh, just listening to her this morning. Lynn, if if you could have any superpower, what would it be? I I saw this question. I really love it because there's so many I'd like to have. But I think (laughs) the one I'd really like is to be able to know exactly what people are thinking. Really what people are thinking, completely unedited. I'd have to be incredibly courageous. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) But wouldn't it be amazing to know that? (laughs) 
Terrifying. Illuminating, terrifying, all of the above. Um, Peter, going back to Ella Fitzgerald, what is your favorite Ella song? A Nightingale Sang in Barclay Square. Oh, I love that one. Lynn, where is your next dream travel destination? Uh, we're off to the Galapagos next year, and I'm so excited. It's been on my list for absolutely years and years. Amazing. Oh, it's so nice. Peter, what was the last book that you read? Margaret Macmillan, The War That Ended Peace. Brilliant. Lynn, what was the last film you saw? We watched Birdman a couple of nights ago, oh, which nice. I didn't enjoy but found intriguing. Peter, coffee or tea? Coffee. Finally, Lynn, sunrise or sunset? Oh, sunset, definitely. I'm not a sunrise person. <laughs> Me neither. Have you ever seen one? <laughs> what is it? <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you for indulging us in the speed round. We find it quite fun. So for the second section of this, now, um, we really want to do a deep dive into your work as philanthropists um, through the Kiowa Trust, um, through your individual passions, and get at really actionable, practical lessons that uh, we can give to fundraisers from the incredible examples that you, that both of you have done. So I'll, I'll turn it over to Alicia for the first question. And you're going to forgive me because I've asked you a lot of these questions yes. already. <laughs> So you've had some practice in answering them, but now everyone will get to hear the dulcet tones that I get to hear when you share this information <laughs> with me. Um, so as listeners will know, you co-founded the Kiowa Trust in 2004, which supports adolescent girls in low-income parts of India. Can you tell us more about why you decided to create the trust and why you chose to invest in girls specifically? We had been giving, um, but in a fairly disorganized way prior to 2004. Um, and we were finding that we had more and more discretionary income, so more and more opportunity to give. But I don't think we'd consciously sat down and said, what are you interested in giving to and what am I interested in giving to prior to that? Uh, I think we were just sort of giving on a fairly ad hoc basis, even though fairly generously. And actually, girls was a, a later decision. Our, our early decision was going to be to support adolescents generally, um, mm. youth, disadvantaged and vulnerable youth. Um, and we turned specifically to girls in 2010. Girls because we realized just how incredibly catalytic they are to all of social change. Um, we know that societies that don't have um, good rights for women and educate their girls well, um, uh, fall behind economically. We yeah. understand the, the relationship between making sure that girls are educated, healthy and empowered um, has to the whole sort of poverty cycle. Oh, that's wonderful. I love how holistic your approach is. That's, I, I wish more philanthropists um, thought like that. It's really fantastic. When I read your question, I thought it was also sort of like, why a trust? And we really liked the thought of the discipline that getting tax relief imposes right. on you. We liked the thought of the legal process. Mm -hmm. We liked the thought of the charity commission. As co-founders of your own private trust and with all this, you know, the logistics and the charity commission, et cetera, what is currently your role? Do you, um, do you have a team that supports your decision-making and your monitoring and, and all of those logistics, or do you take it all on yourself? 
We really do believe in being very specific about what it is we try to do. So our choice of intervention, our choice of the organizations that we'll work with, the monitoring process that we'd like to follow so that we learn lessons. So feedback loops, you do something, does it work? Yes, great. If it doesn't work, why not? We believe very, very strongly in that local presence, culture in context. For people like us to work in India and not understand the culture, we think, would be a huge mistake. So part of the process was identifying people that would do the work for us. So the, the nature of the cause is ours. The nature of the intervention, we'll agree with DASRA. The due diligence, actually visiting the organizations, collecting the material, DASRA will do. Right. DASRA will visit quarterly and give us feedback on how the organization is performing and what the issues are. So it's a very close relationship. We're certainly not a couple that sort of makes a grant and forgets about it. And in, in terms of our individual responsibilities, we, we tend to have different interests or areas where we feel more competent or where I feel less competent and therefore Peter will do it. <laughs> so... Um, so Peter's much more interested in the organization, um, the strategy of the organization, the, the sort of technical capabilities to actually achieve what they're setting out to achieve, the, the leadership. Um, and I'm much more interested in the intervention. I'm also interested in the team and the dynamics within the team of, of the organization that's going to deliver the program or whatever. But we tend to be slightly different in our focus. Mm -hmm. And in terms of decision-making, we do get support from DASRA in terms of all of the due diligence and information and monitoring. But the actual decisions are taken very much by us jointly right. as, as equals. I think you segued us beautifully into yeah. talking about DASRA. And, um, you know, we've spoken a lot about how uh, meaningful and... Uh, just really irreplaceable that partnership has been for you. Um, a bit of background for the listeners who haven't read all of the IG Insights State of Funding for Girls cover to cover yet. Uh, DASRA <laughs> is one of India's leading organizations focused on strategic philanthropy. And when you met them uh, back in, in the early days, they had worked with a number of organizations, smaller grassroots NGOs uh, and some medium-sized organizations across India that were addressing issues related to girls, but mostly on an ad hoc basis, and they didn't have a particular focus dedicated to that type of work. But you came in and you made a slightly unusual request, which was to fund an entirely new team and a project within DASRA that would focus exclusively and specifically on girls and all of the associated costs that came with building that specialty. And you launched this partnership. Uh, it was an incredible anchor donation. And what it's done is leveraged uh, tens of millions. I think we're at 35 million U.S. dollars, maybe more, um, for girls uh, across India. So for the question now, so many charities are after unrestricted support. But very few funders actually trust their grantees or partners enough to give it, especially when it comes to trying something new, untested, or risky. Can you tell us, in your own words, really, why you chose to give this type of unrestricted gift to DASRA and why you think philanthropists need to see 
what, what, sorry, and what you think philanthropists need to see from fundraisers in order to make decisions like that? I think the word unrestricted doesn't really capture what it was we did with mm-hmm. DASRA. So if I said it to you in, if in specific terms, we said to DASRA, we have a potential of $2 million over five years. We think the approach that you take, you're agnostic, you'll consider any region, you'll consider any intervention, and yet we're specifically interested in girls. Mm -hmm. So what we would like to do is take one million of the two million, and we'll give you $200,000 a year for three years, and then we will review performance, and if the performance is good, then we'll give another 200,000 for the next two years. And that million dollars would be focused on developing a team, developing a focus, so that Dazra's name became associated with adolescent girls in India. That right. was what we wanted. Mm-hmm. The other million dollars was in a pot where we would make grants, and that would be at our discretion. So Dazra could come up with ideas, we would come up with ideas, and we would consider different ways of making grants. So unrestricted, unconditional, I'm not sure it really captures it. You know, there was a three-year performance hurdle, which we think is legitimate. Yeah. DASRA absolutely earned the next two sets of 200,000, and we've made more in grants than the million dollars that we offered them. And we've now made a second grant, which will be two and a half times what the first grant was. In terms of earning trust and, um, and you know, giving advice to fundraisers out there, how specifically did DASRA earn your trust? And was there something they did or said or demonstrated that you think other fundraisers should look to as a really shining example of, of building trust with a donor? We worked with them for um, about 18 months before we made this commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, we commissioned a research report from them and worked with them on that. So a lot of our understanding of DASRA's competence came through regular, you know, bi-weekly calls that we had during that research process. Right. Um, And then at the end of that research um, project, we went on a big um, field trip with them. And being out in the field helped us understand their competence actually watch it being delivered. We understood how well they grasped what the organizations were doing, what their challenges were. We heard them at the end of the day, we'd discuss who we'd visited and their insights were so valuable. So they demonstrated it in a very concrete way that that they were really adding value to the process. Now, they're they're an unusual organization because they're sort of a middleman, if you like. Mm -hmm. So it might be very different from an organization that's actually delivering on the ground themselves the process of building trust. But it was actually the demonstration of their relevant skills and knowledge that helped us feel that they would be very competent to to set up a team, even though they hadn't done that before for any other field. We could see that they had all of the component parts very, very well honed and that that would lead to success. Yeah. 
No, I think that's a great insight because we know so many philanthropists do like to do those almost get-to-know-you grant-style commissions or donations that even if it is a smaller, um, less long-term grant, it really can be that um, almost an audition or, you know, a chance yes. for a, an organization to step up to the plate and demonstrate their commitment and their trust and their expertise, which can unlock more strategic long-term funding. So that's that's great to hear that they did that for you. I think that's really helpful. Lynn, would you agree that there's not really a way to fast-track that process? So um, no matter how much you want to compress that understanding of competence and building of trust into a shorter period of time, it really does take time and multiple opportunities. Or have you experienced where that's gone by much quicker? Do you remember we had this conversation where I said about relationships, where you start off by having a cup of coffee, and then perhaps you invite the person out to dinner, and then it's a progression. Yeah. What we have with Dazra is a partnership, and I think partnerships don't normally happen very, very quickly. It's not in a business sense and not in a deep, meaningful sense. You right. have to get to know each other. Well, that's a perfect segue into the next question, which is more of a, a nuts and bolts question. In terms of, so you said, you know, a partnership is like, you know, you go out for coffee and then you have a dinner and, and you have to cultivate and, and do all those things. But for, for a fundraiser or an organization that had no previous connection to you or to the Kiowa Trust or to, you know, not just you specifically, but a comparable sort of private um, family trust, how would you advise them to make that first point of connection? Is it getting an introduction through coffee for a coffee? Is it sending a cold email? Is it trying to go to an event and bump into each other? How, what is, how would you advise someone to make that initial spark that would most um, resonate with you in a way that would make you want to engage with them? I think for us it would definitely be a personal introduction from, right. from somebody who knows what we're interested in yeah. and can see that there's a common link between what, what that organization is doing and what we're interested in. And, and we do get a lot of cold emails and we do also get a lot of introductions and don't always take them up. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or, you know, it doesn't necessarily lead to anything. Right. Um, I, it's, it's incredibly important for us to meet the management. Um, right. And that can start off with being maybe the fundraiser. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at some time, it's important for us to meet the chief executive or the, the leader, whatever they're called, and, and also the senior team. Because for us, it, we're judging the quality of how this organization is performing. Um, and you can really only do that when you meet the top team. Um, and, and subsequent to that, we would want to go out and see their work in the, on the ground. But that would be very much a second second option, not, not the first. Mm-hmm. I think in all walks of life, the introduction is so important. An introduction means that you're getting effectively a reference. It means the person that you, you're speaking to will have already spoken to the, the charity, the NGO, about us. So it's not just an introduction. It's that you start off on the right foot. You know, when people phone us and say, you know, we're really interested in doing this in public schools in the UK, or they say, um, you know, would you make a grant to the ballet? Okay, all completely legitimate, but of absolutely no interest to us as philanthropic issues. Mm-hmm. So in the first instance, although we weren't geographically specific, we were still 
very, very much about the vulnerable and the disabled. Disadvantaged. Yeah. So the person that wants to talk to you has to understand where you're coming from, what your interests are. We have presentations, literally. Just imagine if anybody that understood my background, and when you get like 40 page presentation, there's no numbers in it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. You've run a financial services company for 30 years. How could they possibly do that? Or they come with no presentation at all. Or they come with two other people from the team and never give those people an opportunity to speak. So, so those, those sorts of meetings are disappointing. But it, but it is very much about evaluating how this organization is managed and what is their goal, what are their goals, how are they achieving those, how competent are they to achieve them, and what's the evidence. So often you meet people in these jobs, and I, I can think of specifics while I'm saying this, where they've had no sales training. That's they've had no grooming in presentational skills. Right. They come with no material. They ramble. They don't even have a structure that you would pick up, that you would follow. So being clear about the cause and the evidence that supports the cause that you're promoting, and then a separate issue, being very, very clear about the processes that you follow that will ensure that the money is used wisely and the beneficiary will feel the impact of that money. And I, can, I could go on and on about this. <laughs> But it's, I'm not going to. Um, so it's about training. I think often people, and I've got one lady specifically in my mind, which is quite a big charity. It's more than a million pounds a year. And she, she literally can't talk about the organization. She can't talk about what it does. So the, the training part, 138,000 charities in the UK, and a lot of them obviously are going to be very, very small, and therefore, you know, attracting talent or getting the right quality of people is going to be very, very tough because they're going to be cost-constrained. So I understand the constraints that exist in getting people, but making sure that they can actually deliver a pitch has to be the starting point. I, I think you, you spoke very eloquently, both of you, about the... Um, the evidence base, the competency, those things that are really needed uh, in order to demonstrate what I would almost think of as the science part of fundraising, yeah. making sure you've got the facts, the figures, the knowledge, your presentation, your sales pitch. But then there's the art element to it, right? And so what is it, you mentioned the organization's leadership and how important it is for you to meet them. Can you think of some similarities in the people that you have met with and wanted to invest in or fund, what what are they reflecting back to you? What kind of people are they? Um, how would you describe them in terms of that? You know, what what is it about them that makes you want to say yes? This is who we want to partner with. Uh, Peter Peter's got this fabulous um, expression about needing to have passion, energy focus and competence. And I think it's those things. The, the, the people we feel most attracted to support are super passionate about what they're doing and they've got enormous energy. And actually to, to, to apply themselves to really go that extra mile to do whatever it takes um, 
and and that's fantastic to see and and you see it a lot in philanthropic organizations because people are joining those organizations for the cause and so it's speaking very clearly to their passion what we have seen less of but where we really attracted is where people are very focused on what they're doing are you know very clear about what their goal is clear about how they're actually going to achieve it um and can demonstrate their competence. So it's the combination of those four things that we're most attracted to. If they haven't got the first two, the passion and energy, then there's absolutely, they may well have the focus and competence, but they're not going to appeal to us. So it really is the combination of the four things. Passion and energy in smaller philanthropic organizations, it's, it's always there. You know, someone might join a bigger organization and they don't have the passion and energy. And basically, they're in, the, they're in the wrong job. But when it comes to, if you can't define what the focus is, if you can't define what it is you're trying to do and what your outcome is, then it's impossible to develop the competencies to do it. If you don't know what you're trying to do, how can you decide what skills you need? And it's that part of the process that most often breaks down. They think their passion and energy is going to solve every problem. You can't cut corners on the focus and the competence. The passion and energy, and I'm sure you can hear it in our voice, how keen we are about India, how keen we are about girls. Imagine at the end of all of that, you know, we didn't know really what we were doing. We didn't know what the focus was. We didn't know what the outcome was. We didn't have measurement systems to tell me how we're doing. The number of times we meet NGOs and they say, we ask them what's their outcome, how do they demonstrate their results? And they say, well, that's very, very difficult, which is absolutely true, but it's not, it's not an acceptable answer. Right. No, that's a good point because it is difficult, but it still has to be done. Um, I think... In terms of of actually, you know, of, of demonstrating that outcome and that impact, and and getting into the the stewardship phase of a relationship, um, if a grantee, um, you know, did have a management challenge, I know, um, Lynn, you have this great quote in the IG Insights report where you say, "Part of what gives us a buzz is the involvement. We want to be deeply involved in the organizations we support to understand their management challenges, to get to know the team, and be a genuine partner," which is so fantastic and refreshing. Um, but in terms of, you know, saying, oh, well, we actually, we're not quite sure how to quantify this impact in a way that will resonate with you or with other donors, how would you work with a charity to overcome a challenge like that? How would you want to approach them? And do you, do you really want to know right. all of it? <laughs> it's a great question. I, we do want to know all of it because in a way it's part of our understanding, our assessment of how competent somebody is to overcome a challenge. You know, they may not have faced this situation before and they may be genuinely in a in a conundrum about it, but often there are things that they have done that have been similar or they've demonstrated a competence that will get them through that in a different part of their work. So understanding the challenge and understanding how they're thinking about it is what's important to us. It's not even necessarily the steps they are then going to take to solve it. With Dazra, we often have the conversation, uh, which is, don't tell us the decision you've made, just tell us 
how you came to, you know, what what were the considerations? What did you compare it with? How were you thinking about this? What were the values or the the, the criteria that were fundamental to your thinking in this process? Making the right choices of what you do is much more important than how you do it. You can do the wrong thing brilliantly and have absolutely no impact. You can do the right thing in an average way and you can have a big impact. So I hope that Dazra would say to you that where we challenge them is on the choices they make. And talking about challenges is only half of the picture, of course. We we also want to know about the successes. And funnily enough, in the last on our last India visit, we met with an organization who we sat with them for an hour and a half and they spent the whole time talking about their challenges and nothing about their successes at all. <laughs> oh, gosh. Which was, which was really, really unusual. And uh, although it was refreshingly honest, we were left saying, sort of thinking, well, okay, at least put a balanced view forward, you know, come and tell us now about all your successes because they had done some ama- amazing things. This is a big organisation we're talking about. And the guy sounded like Dr. Doom. He did. (laughs) If there is one key thing that you want fundraisers to walk away with from this conversation, a tip, you know, or a suggestion or a thought or a warning, what would it be? Mine would be specifically for fundraisers to feel that it's absolutely fine to ask donors questions about what they're interested in, what they've submitted before, why they've done that, what they do like, what they don't like. I often find that uh, fundraisers, uh, it feels as if they feel very shy to ask penetrating questions um, about us. And I then don't understand how on earth can they start to... um, pitch to us if they don't really understand what we're interested in and how we work, how we think, what our values are. So I think the more um, a fundraiser can really get to understand their audience by asking good questions, then the more likely their pitch will be successful. That's a great one. I think being clear about the cause, being clear about the beneficiary. I continually now use the word the customer. And we first used to say that. They used to say, what do you mean the customer? Say, who is the person that we're trying to help have a better existence? How will we know whether they do have a better existence? And that's having processes to measure change. What does success look like? the first question that gets asked for every grant that we review. What does success look like? I love that. I love that that's the first question you ask because I'm sure the conversations start off on a really inspiring and motivating point. That's that's a great place to start from and and sort of work backwards from there. Um, and, And Lynn, I love what you said about really wanting this to be, you know, making sure that the fundraisers who are speaking to you approach it as a partnership rather than a transaction and and recognize that you as people have your own, you know, strategic and charitable objectives that you're trying to accomplish um, through your philanthropy. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It's very fulfilling and very impatient making at the same time. I just want to say I'm so glad we're going to get to share all of this. So sometimes I ask you things that I already 
have heard the answers to, but I want other people to hear them as well. So much of what you said is so practical and so tangible for people to walk away with, and I'm really excited to share this with fundraisers, and, and um, I, I hope that it will be very illuminating with them. I have no doubt that it will be. That's brilliant. Thank you for inviting us. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, Alicia. Thank you both so much, and, and we'll speak soon. Thanks again for listening to another episode of What Donors Want. And a huge thank you to Lynn and Peter Smitham for their generous time and advice. Also, if you do work in the women and girls space, it's really worth checking out that IG Insights report that Alicia wrote, which is called The State of Funding for Girls. It's a really remarkable piece of original research. Um, and it can be found on our website, which is impactandgrowth.com. If you go to the top right corner, there's a little icon that has an M that's to link to our Medium page, and you can read the whole thing there. Just so you know, Rachel is paid to say those nice things about me. <laughs> um, but seriously, we would love to hear from you. Please do reach out with any questions for us or any questions you'd like us to ask our next guest. You can check us out online at impactandgrowth.com. Say hello to us on Twitter, which our handle is at IG underscore advisors. Or when in doubt, we can always be found at Monmouth Coffee in Borough Market. Seriously, though, Carlos wasn't joking last time. Speaking of which, thanks again for listening. See you soon.